is Inside Berkeley. I'm Kim Ashton. On this episode, we talk to Michael Sweet, an associate professor in Berkeley's film scoring department who teaches video game scoring. Sweet's also a Berkeley alumnus who's composed for the Cartoon Network, Microsoft, Lego, and more. Xbox 360 users will be familiar with his work as it's what they hear when they start their consoles. Michael Sweet, welcome to Inside Berkeley. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you started scoring in 1992, just a dozen years after Pac-Man was released. Now that the video game industry is a $60 billion a year industry, can you tell us a little bit about how scoring has changed since you started? Back when I started, the idea of being a composer for video games was totally foreign. And I think that unlike today, where it's something that kids grow up thinking, oh, I might be a video game composer someday, Um, back then it was a very esoteric uh, career. In fact, I don't think anyone realized that you could make money doing it. And people that made games made a little bit of money, but they mostly had such a passion about creating video games at that point in time that um, they did it more because they loved it, not because they were becoming millionaires off the games that they were um, writing for. So being a composer was even less kind of, uh, or I guess more esoteric in the sense that um, uh, it was just a career that I never thought about when I left Berkeley. And where it's sort of gone is video games have become uh, pop culture. Like everyone that's growing up today plays video games as they're growing up. And so it's part of their um, DNA, so to speak. And so the rise in sort of this video game culture um, across all ages and, and from kids up until adults playing games as part of their daily lives is natural now, where back then it was kind of like the small, much smaller audience with a more limited set of, of people playing games on their computers and things. And now it's grown to such a huge extent that you're playing games on your mobile devices and cell phones, and you're playing them on consoles like Xbox and PlayStation. Um, so it's really uh, changed. And so now we have very famous people that compose for video games um, and that are known specifically for composing uh, video games only. People like Jack Wall and Enon Zur and Jesper Kidd um, all are uh, not quite household words, but people that actually start looking into uh, who composes these video games, um, they're going to start seeing these credits over and over again. Um, Another big composer, uh, Nobuyo Uematsu, is one of the composers that many of my students fell in love with when they were growing up. He's a composer for uh, the Final Fantasy series. And many of my students come now into Berkeley and they say, wow, I want to be, I want to do what he does. You know, his music really inspires me. And it seems that video game manufacturers are um, paying a lot more attention to uh, the scores of their games than perhaps they were in the early 90s. Yeah, the video game manufacturers have realized and understood that one of the powerful components of creating a video game is to bring players in on an emotional level, and music is a really great way to bring uh, players in. A lot of filmmakers have said, um, for instance, George Lucas has always said uh, that the sound is 50% of the experience. And so when you start thinking about um, video games in that way, that sound represents this large emotional component of what you're what you're actually playing to immerse the player in the universe immerse the player in the characters and the um, the worlds that they're playing it can be really powerful and so yes video game manufacturers have really 
decided to put more money into uh, the amount that they spend on composers for for games and also for for just audio in general, including sound design and sound effects um, and voiceover talent. Many games that are produced today use movie talent in their games, uh, which is kind of exciting to see, to hear movie actors being played in video games. In fact, a recent game that just came out, Beyond Two Souls, uses um, two known video game actors, and they were actually motion captured in the studio, and um, they're part of the game. So I think that, uh, yeah, it's just grown exponentially. Can you tell us a little bit about the range of music um, being composed for these games? I mean, you have games on your apps, and then you have something really elaborate like Halo. The range of music in video games today is huge. Uh, some of the games that I was playing in the 90s actually had crazy scores. Um, there was a game set in New Orleans called, uh, or like a New Orleans type place called Grim Fandango, which was Cajun music. And it had kind of this jazzy kind of score with accordions and like jazz ensembles that were really amazing to a game uh, like Halo composed by Marty O'Donnell, um, which is has a choir on it and it's symphonic and it uses um, orchestral instruments um, to smaller games that obviously the kids market is really huge so you have lots of uh, game developers um, such as Sesame Street and uh, Lego and Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon all doing games around many of their shows and the types of music that are in games is just it it totally varies from one one end of the map to another you spoke a little bit about film actors, and I wanted to talk a little bit about how scoring a video game is uh, different than scoring a film. Can you talk a little bit about the different techniques that are used and uh, just the different mindset going into it? Right. Video game composition has some similarities to uh, composing for film, but there's a lot of differences between uh, when you actually are thinking about composing for video games. So. In, in the ways that they're kind of similar, we're still storytelling through music. We're using kind of intervallic relationships and, and you know, when we go from a major chord to a minor chord, how that emotionally impacts the, the player is the same way that a viewer would see that in a film. So that stuff, some of the musical components are the same, but a lot of things um, uh, change when you get to a video game. In a film, you have a specific frame that you can sync to where, you know, the the hero saves the heroine, or um, when uh, the Balrog comes out and meets the hobbits uh, in Mines of Moria or something like that. Um, those are moments that specifically happen at a specific time in a film. And in a video game, uh, you can't plan on that. I can't plan on at three minutes into the specific scene that this is going to happen because video games are generally driven by the player. The player actually um, is driving the action. And so the player may decide to explore for three minutes and then get into a certain scene after that and then hit the monster at like five minutes. And another player may play the same game and he might get to that same monster at two minutes. How do you dynamically adapt music to both um, uh, uh, extend to the person that's playing for the longer length, but also contract or uh, shift so the, the person that gets there in only two minutes can also have a really emotional, immersive experience in the game. And so this is where things sort of change. So the sync in film is constant, um, and it's always exactly the same. But when you play games, 
um, games are adaptable and they change over the course of multiple playthroughs. So some of the things that you end up doing are instead of syncing to a specific frame in a film, what you're doing in a video game is you're specifically sort of scoring to an emotional response, like I'm exploring this level or um, I see someone off in the distance and then the music needs to shift and have a little bit of suspense in it. Um, and I don't know when that time's going to happen. So what we try and teach here at Berkeley is we start analyzing how composers are going from one emotional context to another emotional context. So transitions are really important in these games, and I know that you work a lot with your students on different techniques to uh, transition from one scene to another. Can you talk a little bit about those techniques that you use? Yeah, so one, uh, one sort of simple technique that we use is um, when we have one uh, piece of music, let's say we're concentrating on like the explore music, and we have to get to a, some battle music. Generally, what a transition does is it will bridge those two pieces of music. So in the video game, since we can't count on knowing when that battle music's going to come in, what will happen is the player will sort of drive the action, he'll meet the enemy in the video game, and the, the, the music will have to transition out of that explorer music. So the transition itself is usually a piece of music that connects um, the explorer music to, say, the battle music. So that transition has to do two things. It has to wrap up the music from the first section. It has to kind of put a cadence at the end of the explore section that says, all right, uh, we finished the explore, and now we're introducing the battle music. So that's the two functions that those transitions have to generally take. It's like i got to close that one piece of music, and we have to introduce the next musical idea, and then begin the battle music after that. And that's kind of how transitions work. Do you have some examples of some work that students have done? Yeah, I do. I, I have a great assignment that students do um, in one of my classes, and it's basically focused on writing excellent transitions to get you from one piece of music to another. So I'm going to pull up uh, this student. His name's Alex Abraham, and what he decided to do was I, I allow my students to sort of pick any video game and rescore it to put new music on the game itself. And so this actually happens to represent two states, kind of an explore state where a person is exploring the level. And this person chose to do um, a game called Bioshock, uh, Bioshock 1. And then we use a transition to get us to a battle state. And I'm going to walk us through how that works. And this can happen at any time, the transition. All right, so in this section, we're hearing kind of the explore uh, uh, music at the front of it. And the person is uh, walking through the level, kind of exploring the level, um, finding different items, examining them, looking around. It's a little suspenseful, but it also um, doesn't say danger quite yet. You know, it kind of says, oh, this is a creepy, mysterious place. Where am I going? Um, and then sometime in the level, uh, we'll get to the section that is overtly battle. And what I'm going to do is, at any time, I can kind of press the battle uh, us, for us to go into the battle section. So I'm going to do that right now, and we're going to hear a transition to get us the battle music. We'll close the explore theme and go into the battle. So that was the transition. I kind of had a glissando. Well, it actually had like a percussive riff at the front of it going into a glissando. 
that ended up into um, beginning this sort of battle theme. And the battle theme continues on until I say, all right, now we need to get back to explore. And again, that could happen kind of at any time. I'm just going to pick a random point, like right now. And we heard another transition wrapping up the battle music. And then now we're back into ex explore, very seamlessly sort of getting back and forth. And so that, you know, this assignment's about how do I write that best transition to close one idea and introduce another? And again, just to give it a little more context, again, if I want to go back, I can do that at any time. And that's how that works. Great. I imagine it's really important because if you if you uh, kill the bad guy, you don't want to still be in that suspense mode. Yeah, that's a com so one of the things that composers and audio designers find when they play video games is sometimes they can find mistakes um, when playing a video game. I remember playing a video game which will remain nameless, a fairly prominent video game where I'd kill like there's a boss monster at the end of the level. And I took him out, but the music was still super energetic, and it felt like, oh, there, there must be a guy around here someplace. You know, I have to, you know, I must have missed someone along the way. So I'm searching around the level, I'm searching around the level, and then I then the music sort of fades back down and gets back into more of an explore state. And I'm like, oh, you know, bad music physics going on there. I'm not exactly sure what happened. or And so... Part of the design of music is not only the compositional process, but the implementation. How does it actually implement in the game? And getting all those little pieces correct can really make the, the player feel immersed in this experience. And when the player starts questioning, well, why is the music doing this when there's no other enemies to kill? Or why is the music in one space? Um, then, you know, there's obviously a problem. And so one of the things that we, we try and do at Berkeley is say, we, we look at how video games are made, how they're composed, how they're implemented, and how it all needs to work together between the game mechanics, back to the music, and into the implementation itself. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, some of the cool things that we're doing in Berkeley. How does Berkeley prepare its students for the industry? At Berkeley, there's a couple different ways that we try and prepare students to become video game composers. Um, one of them is teaching them fundamental techniques about interactive composition. So that's one layer of the things that we're trying to do. And that's a big area in terms of the kinds of things that students need to think about or composers need to think about um, once they're actually working on a game. Um, we have so, so part of that is also relates to technology, the kinds of technology that is involved with creating video game music goes beyond just the standard uh, DAW or digital audio workstation like Pro Tools and Cubase and Digital Performer and goes into other types of software, including game-making software like Unity and UDK and also other kinds of audio middleware software which connects kind of music to the game itself. Like there are two big uh, audio middleware engines out there right now. One's called FMOD and one's called WISE. And both of those uh, technologies, students get to learn uh, during some of the video game classes to learn how professional composers think about music, how they implement music into games. So um, that's kind of like the technology component and the music component. And then the third component is um, the business and collaboration side. So one of the th other things that I've tried to promote a lot of are 
um, well, we, we, at Berkeley, we have a problem. And this problem is that no one at Berkeley makes games. So how can my students really learn what it's like to work on a game when we don't make games here? So what we've tried to do over the past, past five and six years is set up collaborative relationships between Berkeley and other universities that are actually making games. So we have sister classes at other universities around the country, including uh, USC and uh, Northeastern and um, SPSU in Atlanta. And we have our students compose and create sound design for games that they're actually making as part of their classes. And so we try and encourage sort of the business collaborative aspects of actually working on a game. And many of my students, I got, um, actually across this week, I, um, in the last two days, I got really nice notes from students saying, oh, remember that person that you set up, uh, uh, set me up with a few uh, years ago at, the, at USC? Well, we're still working together, and now we're working on a, a game for the, the new Sony Vita. And, um, uh, and I got another note from a student saying that um, uh, he was also continuing some of the collaborative relationships, some of those contacts that he'd made at Berkeley with these other programs, and he was also working on another game that they were going to release um, on Steam. So uh, it's really incredible for to see some of my students continue to utilize the relationships that they made right here at Berkeley. So there are some other programs that prepare students for the video game industry for, for scoring for it. What makes Berkeley different? Berkeley's unusual in the fact that it's a four-year music college and that all students here have four semesters. The first two years is all about musical building blocks. And so all the students learn harmony and theory and a little bit of music composition techniques and um, how to play and perform and um, uh, some business. And so by the time that I generally see them, which is in semester five, like year three, that they already have this this vast musical knowledge. And then I'm able to take that sort of the, the beginnings of basic composers and then pull them in and teach them all these advanced techniques about how um, composers are using this technique or another technique and really push them to become really uh, great writers. And I think that um, that dynamic where Berkeley is 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 a little bit more of a, a contemporary music college, helps um, uh, students really relate to uh, the kinds of culture that they grew up with. Uh, so many colleges uh, do a great job of teaching harmony and theory and um, things like that, but don't have as much of a handle on contemporary music techniques um, in a shape with inside of video games, because the video games are still kind of a new field. I, I think pushing the envelope a little bit in terms of really teaching our students practical knowledge that they can go out in the industry and actually go work for a game developer and uh, not only from a musical, in, an intelligent musical way, but also in uh, a collaborative way um, and uh, to go out and form their own kind of relationships and network to build, build off of. And you're a Berkeley alumnus yourself, um, and you've had some high-profile jobs in your career from Cartoon Network to Lego to Microsoft. Uh, what are some memorable experiences that you've had, and what are you working on next? The first couple games you do are the games that really kind of mold and shape your career. And so the first couple games—and and one of the other things, too, is 
um, if you do a good job for your um, for a specific client, um, the relationships that you make on those first early jobs stay with you. So many of my clients I've been working with for over 20 years now, and that's a long time. And so um, part of the things that are really special to me are the kind of relationships that I have, the trust that my clients put in me to um, create music for their games. And so um, whenever I look back on, on any of the games that I've done, I, I think it, part of it's about the music, right? But part of it is also about the relationship that you had with these people and the care and investment that everyone's making in on the project. So my very first game that I worked on uh, um, was was back in 1992, and it, ha- it was, a, um, it was uh, called Time Warp with the Flintstones and the Jetsons, which are television characters from the 50s and 60s. And basically, Fred Flintstone, who lives in the Stone Age, switches places with George Jetson, who lives kind of in the Space Age. And they kind of go to each other's universes. And um, uh, so I was able to have a lot of fun with both kind of Jetson Space Age music and also with Flintstone Stone Age music at the same time. And so I have... um, uh, uh, so that was that was a really intense experience that I sort of fell backwards into. I didn't expect to do a game, but it happened, and it was a really awesome experience. Great. Well, let's take a listen. So the first thing that I'm going to play is um, just the introduction to the Flintstones, Jetsons um, world that we were setting up. So this is the very beginning where George and Fred switch places. So you can kind of hear George and Fred, like, flying through space, and they're kind of, uh, you know, shouting at one another, and then they kind of hit each other in the middle, and then we play the main logo at the end. So yeah, I did that way back when we had no money to do uh, any kind of live instruments, um, and it was uh, it was a blast to do. And again, um, it was all about the relationships and the investment that we were making. We were all having a great time making games, and um, I think that's one of the things that people really need when they go out into this industry is such a passion about it that they'd be doing it anyways. It's like I'd be making video games anyways, uh, even if I wasn't making money off it, because it's the thing that I really care about. Um, most of the composers that we bring to Berkeley that are professionals in the field, we try and bring as many people as we can into our classes to speak to our students. And um, that's the one thing that they kind of all have in common. It's like, well, I don't I don't really know how to do anything else. This is the only thing I know how to do because it's the thing that I really care about. So even if I was working at the Apple store, you know, this is how I would spend all my free time because it's the thing that I really love to do. And what kind of jobs are available for people who go into the video game industry? What's the range of jobs? So in the video game industry um, itself, there are different disciplines. So obviously sound is one of the disciplines and sound and audio. And even within the sound and audio discipline, there's many different things that people can do or Berkeley graduates can do. Um, obviously, we we spend a lot of time talking about composing. So, obviously, composer is a field that they can kind of go into. Composers are usually assisted by people too. So, there are assistant composers that sometimes write secondary cues. Maybe they do some orchestration. They do they fix technical problems that are happening uh, 
with a sequence or, or problems that the composer might be having with some, some other technical component. Um, then there are the, uh, you know, the performers that perform the music. There are implementers that actually take music and put it into the game, and then they kind of mix it into the game a little bit. So those kind of people know a little bit about the technical angles of like a little bit of programming, a little bit of music, a little bit of mixing, and they're able to make all those things happen and put the music in the game. In addition, implementers also take sound design and sound effects and also place it into the game. So getting into that side of things, there are um, sound designers and Foley artists and people making all the, you know, uh, they're recording doors and guns and footsteps and all those other things um, to put into the game as well. So um, kind of audio is a, is a huge component. Then the third part of it besides, so we have music, sound effects, and sound design, and then uh, the last component is dialogue, right? Going out and recording uh, dialogue, and many games now are recorded in um, six to eight languages, so a lot of games that are on PlayStation and Xbox end up having different what's called localizations. So you have to do a localization for France and a, uh, another localization for Italy. Both have to be re-recorded. Uh, um, all the dialogue needs to be re-recorded in all those different languages so it can be released worldwide. Such a fascinating industry. Uh, well, Michael Sweet, thank you so much for uh, joining us today in Inside Berkeley. You're welcome. This episode was engineered by student Ryan Walsh in partnership with The Burn. I'm Kim Ashton for Inside Berkeley. 